It was the week before Christmas 1979 in Cedar Rapids when a local teen was found stabbed to death inside her parents' car in a mall parking lot. After years of speculation and dead ends, it seemed that her murder would never be solved. Then almost four decades later, after advancements in DNA testing, genetic genealogy cracked the cold case wide open and a cold-blooded killer was finally taken off the streets. This is the case of Michelle Martinko. On December 19, 1979, Michelle attended and performed with the Kennedy School Choir at the Sheraton Inn in Cedar Rapids for a holiday banquet. Around 7 p.m. when the show was over, Michelle decided to go to the new Westdale Mall, which had just opened a couple of months earlier on October 4th. The mall at the time of its opening had over 100 stores and was a new hangout for the local teenagers and also a great place for an after-school job. Michelle's mother had put a fur coat on layaway for Michelle intended to be a Christmas gift. So Janet gave Michelle the money for the coat, which was about $180, and told her to go look at it, try it on, and make sure she liked it before buying it. Michelle had asked her friend and twirling squad teammate to tag along with her, but her friend had said no. So Michelle headed to the mall by herself, wearing a black jersey dress, a black scarf, black tights, heels, and a waist-length white and brown rabbit fur jacket. She arrived at the Westdale Mall around 7.30 p.m., and from there she walked around, chatted with fellow classmates, and ate in the food court with a friend. At about 8.45 p.m., Michelle called her mom from a payphone at the mall and told her she couldn't find the store to try on the coat. After getting directions from her mom, Michelle hung up and proceeded to go about her shopping. Apparently, Michelle had made it to the correct store, tried on the coat, but didn't like it, so she decided not to buy it. On her way out of the mall, Michelle had stopped to talk to Kurt Thomas. He was a classmate that was working that night at a men's clothing store. Kurt went on a break to talk with Michelle. They proceeded to chat until about 9.30, and while they were talking, Kurt had been walking her to the mall exit. He waved goodbye. She turned around, smiled, and waved back as she exited the mall into the parking lot. The mall had closed at 10 p.m., so when Michelle didn't return home by 11, her parents began to worry, and her father started driving around town looking for her, but without success. Finally, at around 2 a.m., the Martinkos called the police to report their daughter missing. A couple of hours later, at approximately 4 a.m., a police officer by the name of Jim Kincaid entered the parking lot of the Westdale Mall and had found a tan and green 1972 Buick Electra parked in the northeast corner of the mall parking lot near the J.C. Penney store. As Officer Kincaid approached the car, he noticed that the windows were frosted over and he was unable to see inside. The driver's side passenger door was unlocked, and when he opened the door and looked inside, he saw a young woman lying between the passenger seat and floorboard. 
It was Michelle Martinko. Blood and fur from the fur coat Michelle had been wearing was scattered throughout the car. Based on Officer Kincaid's assessment, he said it was clear at that point that Michelle was deceased. She had been beaten and stabbed to death. Deep defensive cuts to her hand showed she fought as hard as she could against her attacker. According to Michelle's family, she was a popular, kind, and well-liked person with no enemies. So who would have wanted Michelle dead? Upon conducting Michelle's autopsy, the medical examiner determined her time of death between 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. The murder weapon was determined to be sharp-pointed, but could have been something other than a knife. The medical examiner was unable to determine the size of the weapon used. Michelle suffered in total 29 stab wounds to her head, neck, chest, and arms, including one that punctured her right lung and two that punctured her left lung. The final stab wound went through her sternum and rib cage and pierced her aorta, and she eventually bled to death. She had also received a blow to the head, which caused internal bleeding. As investigators processed the car, it became clear that the suspect was wearing some type of latex or rubber gloves. The gloves the suspect wore had left a glove impression in dirt on the outside handle of the driver's side door and two glove impressions inside the car in blood, one on the steering wheel and one on the gear shift. Investigators gathered as much evidence that they could, including all items that were covered in blood. At this point, it was fairly early in DNA technology, and the only thing they could test for at that time was blood type. Investigators were puzzled from the beginning as to a motive for Michelle's brutal murder. Michelle had purchased a few items at the mall that evening, and the shopping bag was still in the back seat untouched, and Michelle's purse was in the car, which still contained the $180 that her mother had given her. So if nothing was taken, then robbery couldn't have been a motive. And when Michelle was found, investigators said she was fully clothed, wearing her coat, dress, shoes, and tights. There appeared to have been no attempt for her clothing to be removed. The autopsy later confirmed that Michelle had not been sexually assaulted either. So without a clear motive and the horrendous condition Michelle was found, it made sense to police and the family that her attack was personal, meaning it was a very strong possibility it was someone she knew. Investigators went back to square one to retrace her steps from that night to see if anything or anyone stood out. They confirmed Michelle's arrival to the mall at 7.30 p.m. because some fellow students saw Michelle parking her car. And while in the mall, she ran into several boys from her choir group. The last person to see Michelle was another classmate named Cheryl Landers, who said she saw Michelle walking towards her car as Cheryl was entering the mall shortly before closing. Investigators then learned that Michelle had run into her ex-boyfriend that night, Andy Seidel. They learned that there was definitely reason to suspect him, and he quickly became their prime suspect. Michelle and Andy had dated for two years, but Michelle had broken up with Andy about a year prior to her murder. According to the family, Andy had a very difficult time with the breakup and was constantly checking in on Michelle. He seemed to be unable to let go, but Michelle was dating other guys, and so it was apparent that she had already moved on. In fact, that night, Andy had called the Martinko home and asked to speak with Michelle because he had bought her a Christmas gift. 
Apparently, he had bought her the gift that night at the mall, but it was never revealed what time he called looking for Michelle. The family had a very strong suspicion, too, that it could have been Andy because of his obsession with Michelle, and to investigators, it answered their question of why this happened. But Andy claimed that he had an alibi. He said it was completely by chance he ran into Michelle at the mall. He was there with another friend. They left, and Andy went home shortly after the mall had closed. His mom confirmed Andy returned home shortly after leaving the mall and stayed home the rest of the night. So we know that Andy ran into Michelle at the mall and that he supposedly had purchased her Christmas gift while he was there and then went home just after 10 p.m. It doesn't seem plausible that he would call Michelle to tell her he bought her a Christmas gift before he bought it. So if he called her after he returned home from the mall, then it would have been after 10 p.m., which based on the autopsy, Michelle was already killed by then. So either he made that call on purpose to cover his tracks and make it appear he didn't know anything or he was completely innocent and had no idea what happened to Michelle. Investigators believed his alibi wasn't as airtight as he wanted it to be and they couldn't rule him out as a suspect. Police then looked at the guy Michelle had been talking to shortly before leaving the mall, her classmate Kurt Thomas. Kurt Thomas claimed he was taken in and questioned about Michelle's murder before he even knew she had been killed. It was assumed the suspect police were looking for was a male, so they questioned every male in Michelle's life, but without the ability to rule many out and without the evidence pointing to any particular person, they were constantly left with more questions than answers. Within the first week of the investigation, 200 tips had come in, but the one that seemed the most promising at the time was that a couple of witnesses had described a man who was wandering the mall parking lot around the same time frame of Michelle's murder, and his presence and behavior made people feel uncomfortable. They described him as being a white man in his late teens or early 20s, around six feet tall and weighing between 165 and 175 pounds. He also had brown eyes and curly brown hair. The witnesses worked with a sketch artist and a composite sketch of him was released on June 19th of 1980. It was never made clear if the sketch generated any new tips, but the sketch didn't lead to any new persons of interest or arrests. As time went by, horrible theories started to develop around Michelle's murder, including theories of drug rings and even prostitution. Michelle's heartbroken mother for years after her daughter's death was even subjected to cruel prank phone calls of people calling her and saying, Mother, it's Michelle, and laughing. And that is where the case sat and eventually went cold. During Christmas time, which should be a joyous time, Michelle's family spent every year holding candlelight vigils in her memory praying for a day that they would have answers on what happened to such a loving and innocent person. Then in 2005, a detective by the name of Doug Larison reopened Michelle's case and re-examined all the physical evidence that was gathered from the crime scene. Police had theorized that based on the evidence at the crime scene, it was a possibility that the killer had been cut as well. 
So after combing through all the evidence, Larison decided to send some swabs to the lab from the gear shift of Michelle's parents' car. And what came back was a partial profile of male DNA. Now, at this time, partial profiles were unable to be entered into CODIS, but it was able to be compared to potential suspects in the case for a match. From there, police went back to their suspect list and started collecting DNA samples. And of course, the first person they went back to was Michelle's ex, Andy Seidel. He willingly gave a sample and the police and family were near disbelief when it came back that his DNA was not a match. Sadly for Andy, many friends and family of Michelle truly believed he had something to do with her murder all those years and thought he got away with murder. Police went back to their list and next up was Michelle's friend at the mall that night, Kurt Thomas. By 2005, Kurt was married and at the time his wife was a judge. Based on the advice of his wife, Kurt initially refused a DNA sample and that put up red flags for investigators thinking they had finally found their guy. After some negotiation, Kurt agreed to a DNA sample and when that came back, it was determined his DNA was not a match. Police were very thorough and collected samples from every male in Michelle's life, including her sister's husband. But with every sample they received back, they kept getting the same result. Their DNA was not a match. After testing 125 people, there was no one else to test. So police had come to the conclusion that the man who killed Michelle was likely a complete stranger to her. Investigator Doug Larison went back to the case file and reviewed all the evidence one more time. And the answer was right there in front of them and had been for 26 years. Doug had taken a chance and sent Michelle's black dress back to the lab for testing in case they had missed anything. And they were stunned to find that a full male DNA profile had been obtained from the dress, which matched the DNA profile from the gear shift. They finally had what they needed, but when they entered the DNA in CODIS, no matches came up. So that meant the man who had killed Michelle probably had little to no criminal record in order to not have his DNA in that database. When Doug Larison retired, he then passed the case on to investigator Matt Denlinger with the Cedar Rapids Police Department. From there, the case sat waiting for a DNA match in CODIS or for new information to come forward. And in 2017, investigator Denlinger received a tip from an unlikely source, his own wife. Matt's wife had received an Ancestry DNA kit as a Christmas gift and questioned if that type of DNA testing could be done with the Martinko case. From there, Denlinger got to work and contacted Parabon Nanolabs in Virginia. This relatively new genetic tool known as phenotyping gave the ability to compile characteristics and a facial reconstruction of the killer based on his DNA. And in 2017, they released three picture profiles with different hairstyles to the public. From there, hundreds of tips came in, but their suspect pool increased by so many, it seemed impossible to narrow down. Then in the spring of 2018, the world received shocking news that the Golden State Killer had finally been captured by means of genetic genealogy. Denlinger then submitted the DNA profile of their suspect for testing, and it was entered into a public genealogy database. 
Denlinger was shocked to find that their suspect DNA had a familial match to a woman by the name of Brandy Jennings living in Washington State. Brandy had submitted a DNA sample through a genealogy website to learn more about her family's heritage and had never imagined her DNA could help in solving a cold case. Based on the analysis of the DNA, genealogy experts determined Brandy was a second cousin once removed, and from there a family tree began. After extensive work, Denlinger's suspect pool was narrowed down to three brothers. All still alive and all had lived in Iowa at the time of Michelle's murder, and they were all still living in Iowa. Jerry Burns, Donald Burns, and Kenneth Burns. Two of the brothers were living in Manchester, Iowa, and one was living in Davenport. Denlinger was surprised to find that all three men were entrepreneurs and owned their own businesses. They didn't seem to have any criminal records, and most importantly, they didn't have any connections to Michelle Martinko. Investigators decided to start with who they felt was most likely their suspect, so they made their way to Manchester, Iowa, which is a town of about 5,000 people and only 45 minutes from Cedar Rapids, which is where all three brothers grew up. They located a straw that Kenneth had been drinking out of while eating lunch at a golf club. When they received the results back, it was determined that the DNA wasn't a match. So next, investigators headed to Davenport, where they located the second brother, Donald. Investigators collected a glass and toothbrush that was discarded in a garbage can outside of his residence. When the lab results came back, it was determined that Donald wasn't a match either. This left one last suspect, so investigators headed back to Manchester to locate the last of the three brothers, Jerry Burns. On October 29th of 2018, a straw was collected that Jerry had left behind at the Pizza Ranch in Manchester, and after almost four decades, it was music to law enforcement's ears. The sample was a match, with a 1 in 100 billion chance of being anybody else's DNA other than Jerry's, and he was 25 years old in December of 1979. Jerry co-owned a powder coating business with his son called Advanced Coating Concepts, and he was married with three kids. Investigators decided to wait to talk to Jerry, and on December 19th of 2018, exactly 39 years to the day after Michelle's murder, Matt Denlinger, J.D. Smith, and County Prosecutor Maybanks headed to Manchester to confront Jerry Lynn Burns. Denlinger had been wearing a hidden camera while questioning Jerry that day, and during the interview, Jerry was asked to provide a DNA sample. When he refused, Denlinger presented him with a warrant for his DNA. After providing the sample, Jerry was told by Matt Denlinger that they weren't just there on a hunch, and they already knew the DNA was going to come back as a match. They wanted a confession, but Jerry never gave them one. He repeated several times that he wasn't there that night and to test the DNA. Jerry Burns was arrested and taken into custody after the conclusion of the interview. During the trial, Burns' attorney was never able to provide an alibi for his whereabouts at the time of the murder and tried to build a defense around the fact that the blood found on Michelle's dress and gear shift of the car could have been transfer DNA. One of the hardest obstacles for the prosecution was the fact that they had absolutely no motive to present to the jury, but they felt that their DNA evidence was strong. 
During the investigation, the state found evidence of incriminating internet searches on Jerry's computer, which showed regularly visited websites of blonde women being raped, stabbed, and strangled, and depicted sexual intercourse with murder victims. But the defense was able to keep the evidence from being presented during their trial. Investigators theorized that Burns got a sense of personal pleasure from killing Michelle, and it could have been possible that his goal was to sexually assault her, but she had fought so hard that he wasn't able to follow through with his plan. Police believe that Jerry was watching Michelle as she walked to her car alone, and after putting her shopping bag in the back seat, he watched her climb into the driver's seat. That's when Jerry ambushed her and forced his way into the car. He likely hit her in the head to attempt to knock her unconscious, but he was unsuccessful, and from there started to stab her. During the struggle, Michelle fought Jerry so hard that he likely cut himself in the process, and after stabbing her 29 times, he left her in the parking lot where she bled to death from a final stab wound to her chest. In a documentary interview with Jerry Burns's attorney, he described Jerry as a characteristic small-town Iowa businessman who was the spitting image of a true Hawkeye, which certainly portrays what the locals in Manchester thought of him, but is scary to think that someone who could do something so heinous was seen as an average family man and an upstanding citizen. During the closing argument by Prosecutor Maybanks, he said, quote, on December 19, 1979, the world was Michelle Martinko's for the taking. Instead, she was taken from the world. The jury deliberated for three hours and came back with a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder. Later that year, per Iowa law for the charge, Jerry Lynn Burns was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole and is currently serving his time at Anamosa State Penitentiary. He is currently appealing his conviction and has since hired a post-conviction lawyer by the name of Kathleen Zellner, the same attorney who represented Stephen Avery from the well-known Netflix documentary, Making a Murderer. Both of Michelle's parents died in the 1990s and were unable to see the day that the monster that took their daughter away from them was put behind bars to face the devastation and agony that he had caused. Michelle was described as a person who was outgoing, loved life, kind, friendly to everyone, and absolutely beautiful. She had plans to go to college and major in design and had so much to offer the world. It is important to share the story of Michelle Martinko because although her killer was finally brought to justice, thanks to the hard work of investigators and law enforcement, it remained a cold case for almost 40 years. Many of Michelle's family and loved ones were unable to live to see the day that decades of questions were finally answered. During the initial questioning of Jerry Burns, he admitted to knowing about the murder of Michelle Martinko, but then later in police custody during a police interrogation, he claimed he had never heard of her murder and instead he brought up a well-known cold case of a missing anchorwoman from Mason City, Iowa, Jody Husentruit, who went missing in 1995. This made police question if Jerry Burns could have been responsible for any other unsolved crimes in the state of Iowa. Police investigations have been conducted and as of today, there is no evidence linking Jerry Burns to the disappearance of Jody Husentruit, but 
Could there be another Iowa cold case still unsolved that may be linked to Jerry Burns? One a little closer to home, maybe? To find out, make sure to tune in on Thursday for the weekly episode. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Secrets in the Cornfield. Secrets in the Cornfield is an Anchor original. Sources for this episode can be found in the episode description. You can find Secrets in the Cornfield, Iowa's Unsolved on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.